Welcome to Gut Feelings, a Rome Foundation podcast series. On today's episode of Gut Feelings, Dr. Douglas Drossman and myself, Johanna Ruddy, co-authors of the new book, Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction and the Patient-Doctor Relationship, discuss our book, the themes that we included in it, the various disorders of gut-brain interaction, why they occur and how they can be treated, as well as effective communication skills training to help both the doctor and the patient improve their clinical visit together. We also include questions and answers from the audience in this very special author chat edition of Gut Feelings. We hope you enjoy. Yeah, welcome everyone. Um, hi, my name is Michelle Berry, Executive and Sales Coordinator for the Rome Foundation. It is my pleasure to welcome you all to our live author chat with Dr. Douglas Strausman and Johanna Ruddy, authors of the new book, Gut Feelings, and our moderator, Jordan Feingold. <laughs> Jordan is a fourth year medical student at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, working towards her combined MD, Master's of Science in Clinical Research. Studying the brain-gut connection in patients, with chronic gastrointestinal disorders. She is passionate about education and advocacy to enhance competency among physicians to understand disorders of gut-brain interaction, DGBI, and the centrality of the doctor-patient relationship in treating these disorders. She has her master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. We are thrilled to welcome her as our moderator this evening. We are also pleased that you are with us this evening and want to thank you for your purchase of the new book. We hope that you are enjoying it and finding it helpful to your clinical practice, your own health journey, or that of a family member or friend. And now I'm going to hand it over to Jordan, our moderator. Thank you so much, Michelle. It is a pleasure to be here with all of you today, and I know firsthand how much this book has already helped me. So before we get started, I'd like to thank Drossman Care and the Rome Foundation for their generous support of the webinar tonight. Now, on to introducing our esteemed guests for the evening. Dr. Douglas Drossman is, tra is trained in gastroenterology and psychiatry and is internationally recognized as a scientist, clinician, and educator in DGBIs and communication skills training. Dr. Drossman received his MD degree at Albert Einstein School of Medicine, and his residency was at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine and NYU Bellevue Medical Center. He subspecialized in biopsychosocial medicine at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and in gastroenterology at the University of North Carolina. He is founder, former president, and current COO of the Rome Foundation. He is professor emeritus of medicine and psychiatry and gastroenterology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is also president of Drawson Care, which develops workshops and training programs in communication skills, and he sees patients with complex DGBIs in his gastroenterology practice in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Welcome, Doug. Miss Johanna Ruddy is a rising expert 
researcher, and writer on teaching communication skills to patients and providers, and currently serves as the executive director of the Rome Foundation. She has 22 years of executive leadership experience working with a variety of nonprofit healthcare organizations nationwide and serves as well as a speaker at GI practices, medical centers, and conferences in the area of provider communication and patient advocacy. In addition, Ms. Ruddy co-founded the hashtag Tuesday Night IBS community on Twitter and Facebook, offering a place for both clinicians and patients to meet and discuss cases, symptoms, and treatments for IBS in a safe and encouraging space. Ms. Ruddy holds a BS degree from the University of New Mexico in political science a Master of Education degree from New Mexico Highlands University, and will be a doctoral student at Campbell University beginning in fall 2021. Welcome, Miss Ruddy. So before giving it over to both of you, we also want to thank Commonwealth Diagnostics International for their generous support towards this work. So now I will hand it over to Doug. Thanks, Jordan. Uh, I'm going to share screen now. Welcome everybody. Uh, this is a pleasure. We did one of these last week um, and it was fun. I think we have a little bit of something for everyone. I know we have a large group. We don't know your disciplines or your interests, whether you even read the book, but I think by the time we're, we're done, you'll have a pretty good idea of what we mean by disorders of gut-brain interaction, communication skills, and the patient-doctor relationship, which is of course the name of the book. Uh, this is the book, as you've just seen before, and uh, there is a link if you don't, if you want to purchase the book. Uh, I'm going to take you through the structure of the book, and then we're going to stop on our on the way as we go through this to give you bits of information that would be helpful to you. So, in addition to the forward and the preface, there are really five main parts that we'll cover. It's very uh, logically structured. The first is really the background, the history, philosophy, uh, and the scientific basis for DGBI, which we used to call functional GI disorders. Part two is really a compendium of all the 33 diagnoses. So you have a kind of a cliff's notes of these disorders, how they're diagnosed and treated. The third part is in some ways the heart of the book because it talks about communication. How do you communicate with your doctor and how should doctors be communicating with patients? And the fourth part gets into, let's call it the process of care. How, do, how does a doctor think of when making a diagnosis? Not what tests, but what do they put into their uh, armamentarium of deciding what tests should be done? And then not what treatment specifically, but what, how do you organize it? Is it mild, moderate, severe, and the like? And then we have other information, which we'll get to. So as I said, part one is the conceptual understanding. It talks about the biopsychosocial model, and we're gonna get into that in a little bit, and brain-gut interactions, which is the scientific underpinning of the biopsychosocial model, and it explains patient-centered care. We talk about uh, historically mind-body dualism, uh, and, and we'll again get into that. And what happened is that this mind-body dualism, which permeated society from the mid 1600s until the present has led to 
I would say inadequate knowledge of these disorders, ineffective treatments, and patient and doctor dissatisfaction. And then we talk about why the biopsychosocial model is the solution. Well, what are these disorders? As I said, it used to be called functional GI disorders. We changed the name with Rome 4 in 2016. Why did we do that? Many years ago, our scientific group uh, searched, did a survey of the AGA, and we asked them what functional GI meant. Well, we found out that most people felt functional GI meant we don't know what's going on. And a smaller group, about 30%, said it's psychiatric. And only about 5% came close to the definition, which was a disorder of the functioning of the GI tract. So it wasn't helpful. And then over the next several years, the science emerged, as you see here, leading us to make a, a definition that's scientifically based and eliminates the stigma of this being either psychiatric or we can't find anything, that we subsume within it patients who have disturbance in motility, diarrhea, constipation, vomiting, visceral hypersensitivity, nausea, pain, altered mucosal and immune function, which you might have read about as leaky gut and inflammatory factors that could lead to sensitization of the nerves, the microbiota, uh, the good bacteria and the bad bacteria, and then the regulation between the brain and the gut, CNS or central nervous system processing. So here is the brain-gut axis. Here's the gut, here's the brain, here's the connection. No other organ system is as closely connected and as hardwired as the brain and the gut. It happens in the embryo. There are nerves that are produced when the brain is forming that populate the gut. We call that the enteric nervous system. And sensations here go to the brain, which is registered. The brain is receiving information even if you're not consciously aware of it. When you eat a meal, the brain knows you've eaten a meal. When you eat a large meal, the brain can register it and that reaches a threshold where you feel full. In these disorders, what we find is that the regulation and the threshold has been altered. So even a normal meal, which most people wouldn't feel, someone with dyspepsia or IBS gets cramps or pain or fullness or bloating. And this idea of brain-gut axis began uh, really during World War II uh, on the Anzio beachhead when an anesthesiologist uh, was, was um, Henry Beecher was his name, was providing morphine to soldiers wounded. And what he found is there was very little need for morphine. The soldiers who were injured in the battlefront had no pain. And he came to the theory that, well, the heat of the battle must be in some way blocking the pain. And then 20 years later, in the 1960s, the Nobel Prize to two psychologists, uh, Melzack and Wall, was given for the gate control theory, which says pain is not what happens here in the body. It's what happens here in the body that goes to the brain, and then the brain receives that and sends down a signal to block the pain. It inhibits the pain, and we call that down regulation. So if you're, if you're running a race and you sprain your ankle, the brain, you're so focused on the race, the brain prevents the pain signal from going up and you don't feel the pain. After the race, you may really feel the pain. 
And the converse is also true. There are lots of experiments with college students where you put them under stress, stressful mathematics or humiliation. Um, this is maybe before IRBs were popular. Uh, and what they found is that the stress lowers their pain threshold. So when they're given a heat signal to say their arm or hand, it hurts more. So it goes both ways. You can have good things happening in the brain that block pain, and you can have bad things happening like stress that can increase pain. Which leads us to the biopsychosocial model. This was developed by my mentor, George Engel, and this is our GI representation of it, where we talk about that factors early in life, like genetics, culture, environment, early trauma, early infection, the way your parents treated you when you were sick can influence not only how you are later in life psychologically, but even physiologically. It can affect the motility or your pain threshold. Your microbiome can be affected by this. And all of this feeds back to affect psychological state. And you notice this is a bi-directional system. This is the brain-gut axis, axis. And that leads to our symptoms, uh, which are what we as clinicians see, or you tell your family and friends, the severity, other symptoms, and then we look at the outcome, which is, do you go to the doctor? Can you function? What's your quality of life? Do you have procedures? And how much does it cost in our healthcare system? Now, by producing this, this domain, disorders of gut-brain interaction, what we did is create a new entity from what was traditionally understood in gastroenterology. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, we dealt with symptoms, um, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, and the like, but it, was, it had no organizational structure. Beginning um, in the begin at, the end, at the beginning of the 20th century, you, you started to have uh, organ structures, pathology, defining conditions like IBD, colon cancer. And then around the 50s and 60s, motility became uh, understood by using uh, pressure sensors. And this was looking at conditions like gastroparesis, colonic inertia, pseudo-obstruction. And this was based on physiologic disturbance or altered motility. So we had pathology and altered motility and what was left. Well, some people have neither of those. They have symptoms, but it doesn't fit into this rubric. And that's the disorder of gut-brain interaction. And we'll, get, we'll talk more about that. But these are esophageal chest pain, dyspepsia, IBS, chronic pain, and the like. So that's part one. Part two are the disorders, lots of disorders. Rome classification broke it down into uh, the localization because patients attribute symptoms right here in the chest as being heartburn or chest pain, and in the upper gut as gastroduodenal, and in the bowel, the lower abdomen. And these are the disorders of gut-brain interaction in adults, from esophageal to gallbladder, to the anorectal disorders like incontinence or, or anorectal pain that we call levator ani syndrome, or proctalgia fugax, uh, which is fleeting pain that can come and go, or chronic pain, or dyspepsia, and of course, irritable bowel, constipation, and diarrhea. 
So that's part two. It's the it's the larger section, and each um, each condition seen here has its own um, uh, classification with how to make a diagnosis, what's the pathophysiology, what's causing it, how do you treat it. The third part gets into how should patients and doctors talk to each other, what do patients experience, and what do doctors experience, and we get into the problem that exists now. There are lots of factors in our healthcare system that are impeding the doctor-patient relationship. Uh, the Institute of Medicine in 2001 came up with the concept of patient-centered care, which is a collaboration where the patient and doctor are working together. Uh, how do you get there? Well, you do it through communication skills. And then we'll, uh, we have a, a section where Johanna uh, who has, has been a patient with severe illness and now is a patient advocate, talks the, the severe illness that she had and how she recovered and what the factors were that led to, the, to recovery. And these have very powerful elements for those of you who have these symptoms. And then we talk about what should the doctor do in the relationship, what the patient should do. The fourth part is what should the doctor be doing? How does he or she make a diagnosis? What factors lead to the treatment profile? Uh, is it what are the symptoms, the, the types of symptoms, psychologic features, or severity? Someone with severe chronic pain is going to be treated very differently than someone who has mild or occasional pain. And then we have um, some tips uh, about how to improve communication. Uh, I call this the bells and whistles because we have video links. We have about 30 video links that show videos of Johanna and I uh, role-playing scenarios that you're reading about. We have cartoons. Uh, we have scientific images. We have a glossary. And then we have all the Rome criteria. And if you're looking to find a doctor who works in this area, we have an international listing of treatment programs as well as educational products and resources from the Rome Foundation uh, and from other organizations like the Rome Gastro Psych Group, IFFGD, ANMS, and more. So why did we do the book? Well, we have uh, a failing healthcare system, I believe. And there are many factors for that. First of all, the doctors don't have the time uh, in the 1970s, a, a visit was 45 minutes. Now it's 12 minutes. The art of medicine has disappeared. The art is the software. It's how you use the information in making decisions, in communicating. It involves nonverbal communication. The proxemics, is the patient sitting next to you and are you looking at the patient? Or is it across a very large desk where the doctor is looking at the computer and not even looking at you? Has a doctor ever touched you, done a physical exam? These are factors in the art of medicine that can improve patient satisfaction and can lead to more meaningful information. If the patient likes the doctor, which we'll get to later, they communicate better, the doctor gets more information, the doctor is satisfied. But we're dealing with technology I had a resident tell me a few years ago, why talk with and examine the patient when I can get a CT? And there lies the fallacy. The CT 
is a remarkable tool for biologic pathologic information for structural abnormalities, but it says nothing about the patient's experience of the illness. You can have serious disease and the patient can have no symptoms. And the patient, as in the case with DGBIs, can have really severe symptoms and the CT is negative. And then we're confronted with the patient saying, the doctor said there's nothing wrong. So abnormal structure and physiology correlate poorly with symptoms. The doctors have less time because they have to focus on all sorts of certification requirements that takes up a good 40 or 50% of their time. And then they have the electronic medical record uh, where they spend maybe 50% of the visit just looking at the computer. Leads to patient's dissatisfaction with the care that's being delivered. Here's a good cartoon, which is in our book. Doctor will be in shortly to type on the computer and update your chart. If he has time, he will ask how you're feeling and take a look at your rash. Little bit of surprise here. A few years ago, I took a month to understand and catalog what patients told me. Now my practice deals with the more complicated patients who've been around to a lot of doctors, get referrals from Mayo Clinic uh, with difficult to understand and manage conditions. And so they come to me kind of preset. And these were the things that they said. Doctors don't believe me. There must be something wrong. I know it's real. Touching on credibility. Frustration. I want you to open me up and find out the problem. Then it gets into the question, is it psychiatric? You don't think it's in my head, do you? Sometimes I feel like I'm going crazy. The sense of isolation. When we do focus groups, patients can share that they can't talk to anybody. They feel like can't even talk to their spouse about what they're going through, or they perceive that they don't listen. Patients feel like they've changed as a result of this chronic illness. I'm not the person I used to be, feeling of loneliness and isolation. Many, many will say, I feel like I'm a burden to my family. I have no control. And then it gets into a more, let's say basic thoughts and feelings I feel I've done some damage to myself. I feel like a failure and even I feel ashamed. And we'll get to the roots of that shortly. This was a study done at a major city hospital where patients were given to report two words about the doc, the experience after they just came out of clinic with the doctor. And if you know about word clouds, the larger the word are the larger no, are the most uh, items that were used, that word was used. So this was several hundred patients, and you can see right on top is rushed, busy, hurried, rude, uncaring, unconcerned, arrogant, and so on. We have a personable right here in very small print. Why is this happening? Well, we're dealing with a system that um, partitions structural abnormalities that we call disease and the patient's perception of ill health that we call illness. This is verifiable, we call it organic, and this has been called functional. Now the history of this, the roots of this go back um, to thousands of years. There's been, in the ancient Greeks talked about holism, that the mind and the body shouldn't be separated. But coming the 17th century, 
By that time, uh, Rene Descartes in 1637 proposed a paper that the mind and body were separate. Uh, this was harmon this was accepted by the church at the time and at the time the church held dominance about illness and disease the body couldn't be dissected up until this treatise that that Descartes said because the spirit was thought to reside in the body the body couldn't be dissected there couldn't be autopsies now with disease being separated from illness the mind was lifted from the body and the spirit resided there and the body could be dissected and lo and behold, the body was dissected. You learned about disease pathology, surgical pathology. And then later came X-ray imaging, MR, spec scanning. And that defined disease as something you can objectively look at. Now, what happened when patients had illness? Well, back then, patients reported symptoms that weren't verifiable, that were strange. They were thought to be possessed. And then later they were thought to be psychiatric. And they were put into this asylums where the church forbade any scientific investigation. In fact, mental illness only got into the medical curriculum at the beginning of the 20th century, thanks to Benj the influence of Benjamin Rush. So medicine has always been structurally based and mental illness came along afterwards. And even now, when you think about a family member who gets sick, you're looking to go to a doctor to find something on x-ray and endoscopy. And if nothing's found, well, then it must be structural. I mean, it must be structural that they haven't found. So keep going to doctors, or maybe it's just psychiatric. And that's a dilemma. And it turns out that the reality is when we look at all these symptoms, these are the top 10 symptoms that medical seen in medical clinics and this is um, the prevalence of these disorders. And in gold is when an organic or structural disease is found. It's only about 10%. Most of the time, patients go to doctors for symptoms that don't have a structural basis. So what a dilemma. We don't have a structural basis. These are functional, but it doesn't fit. It doesn't feel as legitimate as if you found Crohn's disease or cancer or ulcers. I've had patients say to me, I just wish you can diagnose cancer, at least I'd have something that I know I have. And so there's the search for, for finding something. Here's a nice cartoon from Larson from many years ago. Um, there's nobody can vote, but if you wanna go on chat, what magazine do you think this is? It's a classical magazine. Johanna, I can't see the chat. Did anybody say? Not yet. Okay. I'm watching. Let's give them a second. Yeah, Christina's right. The New Yorker. Good New job. Yorker. There we go. Yes, Joanne and Isaac. Yep. And this is classical mind-body dualism. You have the internist in a white coat saying the old body checks out. Let's see what Doc Atkins here makes of the old mind. So he's done his job, done testing. Nothing was found. It must be psychiatric. The psychiatrist waits expectantly. The doctor, if you're interested in nonverbals, is washing his hands in the case, has that somewhat sardonic smile, and the patient looks wide-eyed with surprise and non-accepting with the closed lips. And why should the patient be accepting of this? Nobody said this was psychiatric. She doesn't think it's psychiatric. 
She still wants her symptoms to be understood and relieved. So we get into this continuum between disease, which is structural abnormalities, and illness, which is the patient's perception of ill health. The absence of both is health. The presence of both would be rightful suffering, so to speak, cancer, AIDS, COPD, Crohn's disease. The problem is that the correlation is not always that great. You can have patients with really severe disease on endoscopy and they don't have symptoms and conversely. And when you have the absence of disease by studies and a lot of the illness, they call it functional or psychosomatic. So the attribution becomes negative. Paul Valeri at the beginning of the 20th century um, made this quote, to see is to forget the name of the thing one sees. And I, I show this because I'm talking to medical students and, and clinicians about attitudes they might have toward patients who they're about to see, who they've never seen before, who they know has a so-called functional GI problem or DGBI. Paul was, Valeri was talking about art. And what he was saying is when you see a new object of art, you wanna forego the prior biases or expectations that you've learned. You wanna see the object for its own intrinsic worth. And that's the same thing when you see a patient. If you see someone who's got uh, any disease you wanna name, there are certain expectations that come up in the doctor's mind. And I, I am proposing don't presuppose get to meet the person for their own worth and value. So let's go into talking about communication skills. Um, why is it important? Well, it improves diagnosis and clinical decision-making. We'll get into that. We talk about a collaboration of care. It establishes meaningfulness. Um, the ancient Greeks talked about hedonism, hedonics, which is pleasure. It could be food, it could be travel, it could be sex, it's pleasure. But they talked about a deeper, deeper thing that was called meaningfulness, and that's eudaimonics, which is what do you get that's most meaningful to you? And by establishing effective communication skills, the work you're doing becomes more meaningful. It's not just pleasure, but it's creating something for you that's greater than what you had before. It saves time and it provides benefits, uh, trust, engagement, mutual goal setting, and the like. So let's talk a little bit about communication. It has four functions, gathering information, no surprise, education reassurance, it builds a therapeutic relationship, and it implements treatment, all on the first visit. Now, satisfaction, you hear about satisfaction, uh, for billing purposes and Medicare reimbursement, hospitals have what's called HCAPs, which has questions like, did you get your medication on time? Was the room clean? Was the nurse responding to your questions? Um, and that is good for billing purposes. But when you ask patients, what is it that they get satisfaction with in their healthcare with their doctors? The first is they have perceived the doctor to be humane. The second is that they view them as being technically competent. They need to see them as competent in what they do. The third is that they need to have an interest in their psychosocial world, how it's affecting their life, their family. And then fourth, 
is they have to provide the medical information they're seeking, but not too much. A lot of times doctors will retreat behind tests and studies and go into a litany of tests and the patients have no idea what they're saying. And, and that's where the message gets lost. So satisfaction are those four parameters. We actually just did a study where we looked at, we, uh, our group developed a satisfaction questionnaire and we also did a patient provider relationship questionnaire. This is the patient version. Uh, Jordan actually did the doctor version, which is currently about to come out any month now. But we gave them a listing of questions of items that they chose were relevant for the doctor-patient relationship. And we wanted to see what predicted satisfaction the most. And these are the items. The higher the bar, the more important it was. Someone I like someone who knows about my case, accepts my feelings, is available, is responsive to questions and concerns. You can see where we're going with this. These are very personal values that patients expect from doctors in terms of trust, friendliness, availability, and the like. There are even negative factors. The doctor seems rushed. Well, we learned about that. Is not concerned about me. These have negative impact, is rude, interrupts, even doesn't do a physical exam. The next thing that's important is engagement. Now, what is engagement? Uh, not that you're gonna get married, but you and the patient or the patient and the doctor are working together toward a shared outcome. So you're working together and that's shown here very non-verbally. Good eye contact. Uh, if you could hear them, it would be a gentle tone of voice. Uh, the doctor would be affirmative nods and gestures close distance, it's creating a, a close interpersonal space. And, and this is what engagement is. And when you have engagement, you can see that they're working together as opposed to both having their arms folded and leaning back, and you just don't think they're connecting whatsoever. And then satisfaction becomes dual. Patients become satisfied with doctors and doctors become satisfied with patients. One of the scientific premises in communication is likability. If patients like doctors, we just learned that, doctors start to like patients. And that leads to the satisfaction in the care. And when you look at negative influencers on doctor um, functioning, uh, like not being dissatisfied, not connecting, being frustrated in the work, that leads to burnout and malpractice suits. And the data shows that burnout and malpractice very much relate to the relationship between the doctor and the patient. If there's a good relationship, then you're getting satisfied with the relationship. Patients sometimes come to me and say, I've been to a major medical center, I won't name the centers, and nobody gave me a diagnosis. And I question that. And now there's a study that came out and shows that when doctors are telling patients what they have, they may do it in one of two ways. Clearly, this is what you have, or in a qualified way. Well, it's possible that, or you may be having that. And if you want to guess, when do you think the doctors give the more qualified diagnosis? For the functional, or the DGBI, or for the organic or structural? How many think the qualified 
is more for the structural or the DGBI? Let us know, Johanna. See if there's any votes. Yeah, let's hear in the chat box. Isaac says DGBI. DGBI from Christina, qualified. That's right. The reason is when you see something on x-ray, you have a sense of certainty that they have a disease, but you don't have a good certainty about what's going on. You just know that they have the disease and you treat the disease, but with DGBI, you don't see anything. So you have to rely on the newer elements, which are the Rome criteria, which give you the positive diagnosis. But if doctors aren't familiar with that, they feel qualified because they worry they're missing something. And here's data to show, as you saw, that the functional has more qualified than the organic, which is more clear. And as a result of that, the functional gets more colonoscopies and gastroscopies. When all you have to do is listen to the patient and make a good Rome positive diagnosis, screen out the other conditions through our book, we talk about what you would do, and then you can say with certainty. And at the end of the visit, doctors have to do two things. Make sure that the patient's needs have been addressed. Have I answered all your questions? And the other is patients don't want to be abandoned in pain. Regardless of how things go, we will continue to work on this together. So I have many patients where we come up with a plan of care and they don't get better. Well, that means we have more work to do. It doesn't mean go on to someone else or let's just do more tests. So uh, stating the diagnosis, understanding and responding, encourage collaboration, establishing mutual goals. And this is something I learned from Carl Rogers, who was a psychologist in the 1950s. He did the concept of positive regard. Positive regard means you go into the relationship with positive views about the patient, not negative. Positive regard and empathy and you engage with the patient to achieve mutual satisfaction. So that's from the doctor's perspective. And now I wanna turn it over to Johanna, who's gonna talk about her experience and what are the elements uh, with living with chronic illness as a patient. Perfect, thank you. So I hope you found Dr. Drossman's um, section helpful in kind of understanding the basis for these conditions. Um, where they come from, how they're diagnosed, and more importantly, the you know how we're still dealing with this very uh, important idea of dualism that's driving stigma and isolation for a lot of patients with these conditions. So we'll go to the next slide. So um, in a global survey, I just this is so interesting to me. In a global survey of almost 2,000 patients with IBS, they said that they would be willing to give up 15 years of their life in order to live symptom-free. 14% of patients admitted that they would risk a one in 1,000 chance of death if it meant living a symptom-free life. Now, both of those points are just very staggering to me um, and point to the, the bigger issue of quality of life with these conditions. And when they aren't managed well, how just completely hopeless and miserable patients can be. Um, 
that drives and is, is driven by stigma. And if stigma um, in DGBI is not something that you're familiar with, you probably can think of stigma in relation to other chronic conditions or even stigma in relation to mental health. Stigma is something that's, that's really prevalent in these conditions and that patients with DGBIs feel very strongly. Stigma is an old concept deriving from an old Latin word of stigmata, but it's experienced in multiple ways. And the two biggest ways are internal and external. So internal stigma, a patient might say that they feel a sense of shame because they can't control their symptoms. They're embarrassed. They think everyone is judging them. Um, I've had patients and even myself um, talk about stigma that they felt maybe in public, um, trying to navigate their way in a restaurant to the restroom as quickly as possible and feeling that everyone in the restaurant was watching them and judging them and, 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 feel, and they felt so embarrassed. External stigma is that family, friends, and sometimes even medical providers don't believe that the symptoms are real and are as debilitating as the patient is describing. And so therefore the patient stops talking about it. They stop sharing their feelings, their symptoms with their closest family members and, and inner circle, and they just suffer in silence. So that external stigma is something that they're feeling coming from the outside in. Both of these types of stigma drive isolation. And as isolation increases, the symptoms also can many times increase. So what do patients with DGBIs need from their doctors? Well, you've heard a little bit already from Dr. Drossman that patients really need a clear diagnosis. They need to hear concise language from their physician um, explaining to them what it is they have. They need to be heard and understood. Dr. Drossman talked about the importance of empathy, and that's something that's so important for patients with chronic illness. They need to have education about their condition, and it needs to be education that is scientifically based and not something that they just find in a patient chat room on a Google site somewhere, which many times leads to pseudoscience and misinformation and drives anxiety and drives symptoms. They also want follow-up care that's initiated by their doctor and their healthcare team. I myself experienced no initiated follow-up care from my physician for many, many years. And they would just say, oh, well, if you need to see me, just give me a call and make another appointment. But we well, probably don't need to see you again unless something happens. With a chronic illness such as IBS or some of these other DGBIs, that's not proper management. These are chronic illnesses. The patient many times will feel helpless and abandoned. And so for the doctor and their team to provide that follow-up care and initiate that, it's really, really important for that continuity of care. Dr. Drossman also addressed patients really want to make sure that they're not going to be abandoned by their provider through their illness journey. And it may be a very long journey, it may be a short journey, but whatever that's going to be, they want to know that their provider is gonna be with them for the long haul. So if we move on, we talk about to patients, what can you do to improve your care? And again, it's a lot about communication. So patients many times will, will say, gosh, you know, I, I saw my doctor and I tried to explain my symptoms um, but I was, I was a little bit um, 
embarrassed or ashamed to describe everything that I'm experiencing. And, and that's probably one of the worst things that you can do. So I encourage patients to be as honest as possible about the symptoms that you're experiencing. Let them know how they're impacting your life, your work, your relationships, even particularly in relationships, your intimate relationships, your with your spouse or your partner. A lot of times these conditions can impact intimacy. And so that's something that your doctor needs to be aware of as well. All of these things drive that biopsychosocial approach to care and to management. And that's going to be important for your doctor to be able to help you. I talk to patients about bringing a symptom journal. And it's not that I'm encouraging you to write meticulously every single day about every single thing that's happening. But if you are tracking maybe your diet and you're looking at symptom flares and how they are kind of ebbing and flowing throughout your week or your month, you can kind of go back and see some trends or some, some characteristics that are the same. Maybe on Monday, I had a fight with my spouse and then I had uh, abdominal pain and diarrhea the rest of the day. And then the next month, the same thing happened again. And so you start to put some of these pieces together. And if you start finding these sorts of trends, that's going to be helpful for your doctor as you're discussing your symptoms and the severity and duration of them. I also talk to patients about bringing along a family member or a friend when you have a clinic visit. And it's important to remember that you're bringing them along for emotional support. You're not bringing them along to provide the, um, the, the communication on your behalf. They're simply there just to be a support mechanism for you, but you're the one that needs to have the conversation with your doctor about your symptoms. Setting expectations, that's really important. It's important for patients and for providers. So for patients, the expectation is that you're managing your chronic illness, understanding that it's not gonna go away overnight, that there is no magic pill or magic wand, but with proper diagnosis and treatment in across a, a journey, that, that it will slowly start to get better. Now, I think a lot of patients set an expectation that they go to see a physician like Dr. Drossman or someone who's highly regarded and they expect that immediately, as soon as they walk out the door, they're going to start to feel better. That may not happen for, for every person. Um, so setting those expectations up front are, is really important. I remember when I saw Dr. Drossman um, the first time after 10 years of living with severe chronic illness, he said to me, you know, how would you feel if we were able to reduce your symptoms by 10 to 15%? Would that be something that would help improve your overall outlook and your quality of life? Well, goodness sakes, yes. Now, was that my ultimate end goal? No, but to have a 10, 15, 20% improvement was definitely something I wanted to aim for. And, and so we set those expectations up front so that I didn't get discouraged and he didn't get frustrated in my, my expectations as well. Um, can you go back one more, Dr. Drossman? Sorry. I'm going the wrong way. Hold on. <laughs> I don't know why that happened. That's okay. Let me get it back to. Uh... Back. 
go back one more. There we go. Um, honesty about concerns. So a lot of times, um, Dr. Drossman talked about that patient-centered care, being a partner with your provider, so important. But that also needs to be um, a part, that honesty needs to be a part of that. So if your doctor is recommending a certain treatment option for you and you have concerns about that, for example, it's important that you're honest with them about that. Don't um, tell them you're okay with it and then go home and decide you're not going to follow that treatment regimen after all um, and not let them know about it. Uh, we talk a lot about um, patient um adherence to medication and, and to treatment plans. And I have a lot of patients that will email me or call me and tell me, I tried this drug and I tried it for one day and it didn't work. And I'll say, well, did you tell your doctor? I'm sure they have some other options. No, no, I'm sure they don't care. It doesn't matter. It does matter. And they do care. And so they're assuming that you're following that treatment plan that the two of you came up with together when you last spoke. And if you're not, or you have concerns, you need to be honest about that up front. That's going to be really important in managing your care and setting up those expectations. Finally, knowing your rights as a patient is really important. Um, in the book, we talk about that. We talk about rights to be heard, to be understood, and to be treated with dignity and respect. And that's something really important that um, you need to demand from your providers and you need to give to your providers as well. So, Moving on past the illness and regaining control, um, I, I am here to tell you that after 10 years of severe chronic illness, I was able to move past and regain control. And honestly, it's not something that I ever thought would happen. I really had just built my life around my symptoms and thought that this was as good as it was gonna get. So to be able to sit in front of you now and, and to be in, in good health and feeling um, that I'm past my illness is, is a major victory. But I talk to patients about claiming small victories along the way. So it's been a process. It's been an almost four-year process of every day managing my symptoms and knowing what my triggers are and my diet and managing my stress and knowing that, reminding myself of that connection between my brain and my gut those are all things that are part of my regaining control. And for patients who are just starting this journey, setting small victories is going to be important as you move towards that larger victory. So I talked to a lot of parents, um, moms who have chronic illness, and they feel like they've lost a lot of time with their family, with their children. They've been so sick. They can't attend certain activities. They've lost time. Um, milestones. And so we talk about claiming small victories. So you, you know, your child's soccer game is coming up, you're not feeling well, you start to really manage your, your what you're eating, you're taking your medication on time, you're managing your stress, and suddenly you get to the weekend, and you're able to go to your child's soccer game, and you're, you feel okay. That's a, that's a victory that you need to claim as you work towards being able to attend every game. So don't get bogged down and, oh, I can't go to Johnny's entire season. That's okay. Someday you will, but let's work towards those small victories now as we move towards bigger ones later. Also important to talk about your feelings about your illness. You know, 
stress is, is not necessarily the reason you have this condition, but it certainly is exacerbating your, your symptoms and the severity of your symptoms. And stress is a part of any chronic illness. It's just a part of life, honestly. And when we don't manage it well, it can really spin out of control and affect our health and really crazy ways. And so if you're feeling overwhelmed, and you're feeling like you need to talk to someone about your symptoms and your illness, it's important to seek professional help. There is, um, there are GI psychologists, there are health psychologists who, who focus only on GI illnesses. And I'm telling you, they are amazing at helping you manage your symptoms and not just manage the stress related to your symptoms or the anxiety that you might be feeling about your symptoms and your illness, but also addressing the, the actual symptoms themselves. And many times through some of their um, behavioral health therapies like CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, um, mindfulness techniques, guided diaphragmatic breathing techniques, and even gut-directed hypnotherapy, you can manage some of these um, symptoms, even the diarrhea and the constipation and the abdominal pain can be managed quite well with some of these behavioral treatments. So it's not just talk therapy and talking about your feelings, but it's also utilizing these techniques to manage your symptoms as well. Talked a little bit already about not deviating from your treatment plan and discussing it with your provider. And then I just always encourage patients to try and find joy and gratitude. You know, there's a lot of science that talks about how the brain can change its perceptions when you're being intentional about gratitude and joy. And when you're finding things to be thankful for, even in the midst of chronic illness and chronic pain, there's, there's still times when you can find gratitude and joy. And when you're intentional about that, that can really change your focus and change how you view your life and your illness. And that leads you to be more hopeful and not hopeless as you walk through this journey, understanding that many, many people are walking it with you and that you're not alone. Many times just talking to a friend or um, a trusted professional, or even many of you reach out to me and I'm happy to talk with you via email or text message can be therapeutic in itself. Just to know that you're not alone and that there are other people who understand what you're going through can be really, really helpful. So these are just some of the tips that I talk about in the book and that I work with patients on um, on a daily basis. And I'm happy to talk with you further if that's something that you would like to do as well. So I hope that's been helpful for you. And as we wrap up this session, if you have questions related to this, please ask us next in our Q&A session. Thanks, Johanna. That was really helpful. Um, I, I want to say that um, this book is really part of a larger program between the Rome Foundation and Drossman Care to um, kind of change the paradigm. We, we have uh, manuscripts, scientific publications coming out that have come out. Uh, we have a working team. We have educational programs. Uh, we are supporting research. I just showed you one of the studies. And we're doing programs to teach communication skills that, that can improve clinicians in how they care for patients. And maybe soon, we'll have programs for patients in terms of how they communicate 
with doctors. You can go to the Rome Foundation website, which is theromefoundation.org, or Drossman Care, which is drossmancare.com. There are plenty of videos, uh, reading material, uh, educational activities that can keep you informed. So I'm going to stop at that point. And I think we'll take about 20, 30 minutes for questions. I know we're running late, but I think uh, if you want to stay, we're here for you. And I'll turn it over to Jordan. Fantastic. So I just wanted to check in and thank you both so much for your time and for such a thoughtful presentation and sharing this work and bringing the book to life. I There are a few questions that have come in from our participants, and we've also had some questions that have been previously submitted. Do we have a preference of which ones we should tackle first? Your choice. Okay, so let's, let's present some of the questions that have come in here. So I have flagged some. So Johanna just mentioned brain, uh, sorry, gut-directed hypnotherapy in her talk. And Isaac, one of our participants, asked, can you address the role of functional and integrative medicine in the diagnosis and management of DGBI? Well, um, so integrated medicine is what we're looking at in terms of more of a combined shared collaborative plan of care that involves the medical clinician, the psychologist, and the dietitian. That's uh, Bill Che at Michigan has promoted that. And so when a patient comes in for a visit, uh, they are gonna be evaluated by all three. Now I'm making a distinction between integrated care, which are these professional associations. So the psychologist might do CBT or brain gut hypnotherapy. Uh, the doctor may prescribe medications and do tests. The dietitian may look at dietary factors. And what's sometimes been called integrative, which is looking at complementary and alternative treatments, which um, may have value, but it's not what we're, we're talking about, more evidence-based strategies rather than looking at uh, um, other conditions which may be relevant like acupuncture uh, and other things. But uh, the ones that have been established scientifically is the integrated care. Thanks, Doug. So we have a question, two similar questions actually. So what is the single most important thing to tell a patient to do to have a better relationship with their healthcare provider? And then Jane has a related question, which is suggestions on how medical providers deliver the described engagement, which is so critical in today's managed care environment. So suggestions for the patient, if there's one thing, and then suggestions for the provider to optimize engagement in uh, the patient doctor-patient interaction. Johanna, you want to talk about the patient? Hmm. Just one thing. If you could just do one thing, then I would recommend the, the full honesty and transparency about the impact of your symptoms, the severity, the duration, and the impact on your quality of life. So all those things that we talked about, because I think a lot of times, you know, the doctors will come in, okay, describe where the pain is. Is it here? Is it upper quadrant? Is it left quadrant? And, and they're just trying to, you know, they're thinking diagnostically and they're not necessarily thinking about that big biopsychosocial 
approach that we talked about. So they're not necessarily thinking that it woke you up at 2am for the past month and you're now sleep deprived and now you're crabby and you bit off your wife's head and then you're fighting and that's driving your symptoms. You know, it's this vicious cycle. And so when you're honest about all of those elements with your physician up front, that's going to set the tone for your expectations of care and, and what you're looking for and really help your doctor to better understand what's going on. I'll add one. So we have two. How's that? The patient should own their responsibility in mm. the relationship because um, the system builds a hierarchy. Yeah. You know, obviously, if if you come in with a gallbladder attack, the hierarchy is very clear. The doctor says your gallbladder has to come out. But when you're dealing with chronic illness, the decisions are collaborative. This is patient-centered care. And patients may feel a bit squeamish. Uh, and maybe Johanna could say more about this with the doctor she had, or a fear of bothering them or upsetting them. And that is not going to work. The patient has yeah. to basically stand on the two feet and and how would you say it, Johanna? How would you say it to the doctor? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think, and it's not to say that you go in with a disrespectful attitude towards the physician and their role. It's that you're understanding that your position as the patient is just as equally important as the doctor's position as the provider. And so I think a lot of times, particularly for people my age and older, mid 40s and up, you, you've kind of been brought up with this hierarchy um, mentality of people in positions of power, right? You know, doctors and teachers and and all of these sorts of positions. And so you go in maybe a little bit more timid thinking, well, they're the expert. They're the ones that should be telling me what to do or, or what's going on. But I think many times it's when you fall into this, you fall prey to not being honest. And that happened to me so many times, you know, I was dismissed. I was talked over. I was, I was just not well cared for. And I, because I saw the doctor in a position of authority and my position as being less than important in that relationship, I didn't question or challenge it. I just was like, okay, I guess you're right. And I just would leave dissatisfied and still sick. Um, and so I, I think Doug makes a really excellent point there, like really going in and kind of demanding um, that, that you're seen in, in an equal patient-centered approach is important. And some of you may feel, well, I can't do that. <laughs> the book has a whole section on how you talk to your doctor when the doctor seems rushed or dismissive and you do it in stages. And you don't blame the doctor. You reflect back on yourself. When you tell me that I really don't understand it, I need more information. Or the way you're saying it makes me kind of feel belittled. Is that what you're really looking to do? I want to, you know, in, in other words, we give you the dialogue to help you get through that when it occurs. I kind of see that section, Doug, as like couples therapy. It's like, you know, it's like when you go to couples therapy and the therapist is like, you know, don't say that they make you angry. Say, when you say that, it makes me feel judged, you know, and it's kind of the same sort of uh, a process. <laughs> It's all communication. <laughs> so that was fantastic answering what we tell our patients and what do we tell our providers? How do we, if there's one thing we could tell our doctors to do to increase engagement in a very, you know, time limited setting for many people, how do we, how do we help them? Well, 
Well, first of all, we have to get past the bias. Who has time to do this? I don't have time to talk about this stuff. I need to make a diagnosis and start treatment. And the data show, the scientific data show that with good communication skills, the doctor can get more efficient information, make a better diagnosis in less time. If we get past that point, then what we can tell the doctor is, you don't have to carry the burden. If this is shared responsibility, if you, if you tell the patient what to do, you run the risk that the patient might not even want to do it or might not take the medication or might take the medication and come back three months later or a month later and say, I'm not any better. What are you going to do now? Burden's back on you. But if you work together toward here's medicine A, side, these side effects, these benefits, here's medicine B, which do you want to do? The doctor is providing the guidance. The patient is shared decision. And then when three months later come back and the patient's not better, the doctor can say, all right, what do you think we should do next? It sounds so weird, but with chronic illness, that's the way you can get to a better outcome. Yeah. And I think from a patient's perspective, they, I, I see that as so much better in patients feeling like they have some sense of control over their illness because chronic illnesses, we know it, it kind of makes you feel out of control and you're, you're kind of grasping at everything you can to find control again over your health and your life because so much is spun out. Um, so when you are brought into the process of treatment and you're being asked your opinion and how you feel about it, I mean, my gosh, how awesome is that? Super. Thank you. So one of the next questions is one that a few people submitted in different forms. So I'm going to try to summarize it. So my doctor, so from the patient's perspective, my doctor wants me to take an antidepressant for my abdominal pain. I'm not depressed. I just have pain. Why does he think this medication will help me? Are these neuromodulators like Cymbalta or Elevil just a bandage that will mask the underlying cause? So what do we tell our patients to, in response to this? And how do we help doctors answer these questions? So remember when we showed the brain gut diagram, we talked about the pathways between the brain and the gut, the hard wiring. Well, you know, it turns out that the neurotransmitters or the chemicals that allow the brain and the gut to talk to each other are the same in the brain and the gut. We have serotonin, we have norepinephrine, we have dopamine. And those neurotransmitters have different actions. And so when in the 50s, these antidepressants were being uh, studied, they were targeted toward psychiatric disturbance like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and so on. And so the drugs established the name antidepressants, but with the neurogastroenterology field evolving, and that these conditions and treatments are targeted toward reharmonizing or regulating a dysfunctional system between brain and the gut, we target the same neurotransmitters in the brain and the spinal cord that are relating to control of pain. So with the gate control theory, we know that pain doesn't only occur in the abdomen, like, like uh, an injury. It also is a failure of the brain with chronic pain to regulate. As time goes on with chronic pain, the signal, the problem is with the brain not controlling the pain. And these, these neurotransmitters 
uh, neuromodulators, excuse me, <coughs> work to establish that. The other thing uh, I think you mentioned was, um, will it, do I have to be on it forever? Did you mention that? Yeah. So is this, is this just masking my symptoms? I can't live like this. Will, will I be in pain forever? Yeah. Well, we don't always know. Um, what I can say from a clinical standpoint is the shorter the duration of your pain, the more likely it could be reversed. So if you've had pain for two years, it's possible we can get it to go away. If you've had it for 20 years, we're talking about symptom reduction, maybe 20, 30, 40% and management, just like arthritis. You know, you can't always cure the pain. And what underpins that is the concept of neuroplasticity. And this is a relatively new concept that brain cells grow and die. When I went to med school, we thought that cells can only die in the adult, um, like with strokes or Alzheimer's, but no, brain cells are growing. They grow in areas of the hippocampus, which is a region of the brain associated with memory and mood, and they, they can die as well. And when you have chronic pain or you have certain psychiatric conditions like PTSD or, or um, severe anxiety or depression, you can have a negative effect on the brain cells where they start to die. And when that happens, treatment may give you temporary benefit, but if you keep them on it long enough, you can possibly reverse the cycle. The most of that literature comes from psychiatry. If someone has major depression and you put them on an antidepressant and they get better in three months, if you stop the antidepressant, maybe 50% would relapse. But if you keep them on it for a year, maybe 20 or 25% would relapse. We call that relapse prevention. So something's happened in that year to relapse, to rewire the system so that maybe we can get them off. And that's the model with functional GI disorders, with disorders of gut-brain interaction. You put them on it, you get symptomatic relief, you keep them on it for a year or more. And then when symptoms are better, you start to taper it off and then hopefully they either won't need the medication, or if they've had it for a very long time, they might be on a much lower dose of the medication. Um, I just wanted to mention one quick thing, um, not related to neuromodulars, but some people have been asking about access to GI health psychologists. And I know that it's hard to find those types of um, professionals. Uh, Rome Foundation does have a searchable directory um, that's growing daily of providers globally who are trained in GI health psychology. And you can find that directory at romegipsych.org. It's a great place to look um, and search by treatment method, modality, area, et cetera. And it's growing all the time. So I would recommend if you don't find someone in your area right now, just keep looking because new providers are being added all of the time. Just give me until the end of my residency and I'll be on there soon too. <laughs> so here's a question from Anne-Marie in the chat. So her, it's a personal question um, that hopefully will be helpful for everyone. My son is a nail patella syndrome patient. He is six years old. 
had a trip to the ER at three years old for urinary urgency and frequency and agitation. He had radiology, found fecal impaction, as well as the notorious NPS iliac horns, which are pathognomonic with nail patella syndrome. He was immediately prescribed Miralax. He has not had any desirable results in treatment ever since and very little diagnostic efforts. So here's the question. Given the lack of education in rare diseases, how can a mother keep her confidence in a treatment or doctor when there are seemingly no desired results achieved? Maybe you want to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Anne-Marie, I can tell you that I too have neopatella syndrome, um, as do both of my children. Um, And my youngest was born with quite severe manifestations orthopedically um, because of it. Um, and, and so speaking as a mother of a, of an NPS child, I've been in your shoes. Um, and it is very challenging, um, to find providers who understand rare disorders like neopatella syndrome. Um, my, what I did is I just researched and researched and researched until I found the right provider. And that meant for us traveling out of state Um, really across the country. Um, And that was something that we were willing to do and sacrifice financially to make happen. Um, But I know that's not feasible for a lot of people. I think that um, the more you can find scientifically based information about your son's condition and bring that to your provider um, as, as, you know, helpful education. um, If you have a provider that's amenable to that, and, and you have that kind of relationship where you can bring more information about the condition, that's an option. I tried that as well. Um, I mean, it, it's nail patella is so rare and so misunderstood in so many things. It's hard to find someone who's going to know every aspect of how to treat a patient with this condition, but um, you're your child's best advocate. So just keep doing what you're doing. And I'm happy to talk with you offline about it, mom to mom, but maybe Dr. Drossman has some advice clinically. Well, the other thing is I think these days there are more credible websites um, that you can go to where you can get some assistance and shared uh, knowledge as well. I think that's a, you know, the patients can provide it too. Your experience could go on a website uh, is there an Ale Patella Society? I don't. I don't even know. Yeah, there's some patient support groups um, on Facebook and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that's true uh, for the rare diseases. There are websites, um, and some of them can help you identify doctors that you can go to as well. Yeah, and you know, I know that a lot of nail patella syndrome patients report having chronic constipation or IBS type symptoms. And I think it's important to mention that neopatella syndrome is not necessarily um, related to neopatella or neopatella syndrome is not necessarily correlated with IBS or vice versa. It just may happen that patients who have IBS might also have neopatella and this and the transverse is true. So don't think that if you have neopatella, you're obviously and immediately going to have IBS or other GI conditions. That's not necessarily the case, but you would manage those symptoms as you would with any other patients, regardless if they have neopatella or not. Yeah, I I don't want to oversimplify it, but um, constipation is kind of a plumbing problem. (laughs) (laughs) 
you really, there are medications and whether there are diseases like Parkinson's disease, affective spectrum, um, uh, uh, autism spectrum. These are conditions where you can have GI disturbances. The treatments are still the same. You're trying to normalize gut function. So whatever the primary diagnosis causing it, the treatments may be more, very much the same. And a good gastroenterologist should be able to help you with that. Fantastic. So you just answered our next question about uh, patients with autism spectrum disorders seemingly having gastro uh, gastrointestinal problems like functional constipation. So um, do you want to elaborate on that any further? I think maybe we covered covered that one. Well, uh, there are things that in autism spectrum that could lead more to constipation. I've had several patients with that. Uh, one is it could be dietary. Um, patients with autism spectrum do tend to eat uh, less in the way of vegetables and fiber. That's been shown in some studies. So by eating um, uh, meats and things like that, they may they may become more constipated. The other thing is um, there may be less of an awareness of the call to stool, so to speak. Um, they're 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 in their own environment and they may suppress the desire to go, and so as a result. The, the, the stool backs up and sometimes they can even get diarrhea. We call overflow diarrhea because of a fecal impaction. So there has to be some education um, to, to help them know when to go to, to bowel movements on a regular basis. And I think in regards to that, you can use a regimented toilet time scheduling. You know, um, my my son is on the spectrum. And when he was quite young, um, that was something that we just had to do. Because as Doug mentioned, I mean, I was either going looking at at uh, accidents happening or constipation for days and days and days. And so really trying to to make it a schedule of every day, this is what we're going to do at this time in the morning. Usually after breakfast is when you know everything is starting to move, and, and it was easier to to schedule a bowel movement at that point. Um, and that's going to be important for for kiddos on the spectrum and have that regimented toilet time. And as Doug mentioned, diet too is you know our, my children uh, were very much on a very fixed, limited diet, and it consisted of chicken nuggets and French fries and apple juice, you know, and so really trying to put in more fiber and more of those leafy greens that are driving uh, your your motility is going to be helpful as well. Super. So before I ask my ne next question, which is my question, I just invite folks who are still on to put questions in the Q&A or in the chat if there are anything lingering. And in the meanwhile, I want to know, as a medical student, I had one lecture on that touched on IBS in all of my medical education. Why are we not taught about DGBI in a robust way? And what can we do about it? Complicated question. It has to do with curriculum. And it has to do with, well, first of all, we start with the mind-body dualism. So within academic medicine, the concept of DGBIs or even functional somatic syndromes are second class. They're not, they're not considered as relevant. And then that gets into the macro structure of NIH funding. Uh, that that the, the focus is on structural abnormalities and 
and translational and basic science. And so the teachers in this curriculum are often people who are steeped in more basic science or in structural diagnoses. And it's not as, traditionally it's not been as sexy to work in the area of functional GI because you don't have, the tools are different. Uh, it's more cognitive, but it's changing. I'm telling you it's changing, I'm seeing a change. It's a cohort effect. Uh, younger clinicians like yourself are coming into it and loving this area. Whereas people in their 50s and 60s, they may not want that much, they may not have that much interest, but that's because they have no knowledge. This is, I think, on the horizon, one of the more exciting areas as we learn about brain-gut interactions. And I think that will filter down to the curriculum. I hope so. I really hope so. And perhaps we'll be part of making that happen. So I don't have any more attendee questions but there are great comments coming in and conversations happening. And yes, if any, <laughs> you can get your book signed. If you see Johanna and Dr. Drossman in real life, if we are ever back, <laughs> are you seeing patients in clinic now in this time? Yeah. I mean, right. I, I changed my clinic from two days a week to one day telemedicine and one day in person. Now I've been vaccinated. Most of them have been in, so we still have the same precautions with face masks and all that, but uh, we do have um, uh, one day a week and, and probably that'll change by the summertime. And has telehealth been an effective way to treat patients with DGBI during this time? Good question. It's not, I require to see them the first time. But I've been doing telehealth for a long time so that if they're doing well, then I can do the telehealth. My only requirement is that I have to see them in person once a year if they're doing well. And that has to do with somewhat medical legal. I just had a patient um, who wanted to come see me from Florida and I haven't seen her in over a year and she's reporting a lot of severe symptoms and I just can't treat her by telemedicine. I need to have her come see her in person do an exam, uh, make some decisions in that context. Uh, the other thing for those of you is that the book has a whole section on the best programs in the world. There are 30 or 40 programs uh, where people um, focus on DGBI as well. I don't want everybody to come to my practice. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> we, can't, we can't host everybody, but I actually, um, I, you know, I'm happy to help guide you to if the book doesn't have an area where you might live, just send me an email. I very often will help match up patients with providers in their area when they can't travel. So this has been really fun. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you all. Thank you. And thanks everyone for coming. Yep. It's been a pleasure and get your copies. <laughs> Do they know how to get it, Johanna? Yeah. So if you don't have a copy of the book yet, you can get it from our website, theroomfoundation.org. Just look in our online store for gut feelings, or you can get it on Amazon and ebook Kindle version as well. So amazon.com. Thanks everybody. Have a great night. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gut Feelings, a Rome Foundation podcast series. This has been your host, Johanna Ruddy. 
Find more helpful tips and resources at the Rome Foundation website at theromefoundation.org. There you'll find videos and printable resources that are helpful for patients and clinicians alike. We'll see you next time.